0: Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. Uh, if you are new here, you may not know me. My name is Ben Hurd. I am the senior pastor. And uh, we are working our way through several psalms this summer. And we've had three already. I trust that you were blessed last week by Pastor Nathan. I had to jet out to California. Uh, but I pray it was good for you. Uh, this morning we're looking at Psalm 51. This is a, a psalm of lament. It's a, it's a psalm of repentance as we've talked about a little bit already. But I think we all know that the universal problem in the world today is sin. Would you agree? Sin has wreaked havoc on our world. It, it has separated us from God. It's, it's something that every person is born with. We're born with sin. No one is born with a bent toward God. It's the exact opposite. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned Our own way. But the hope for Christians is that Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sin so that everyone who would believe in him would find salvation. Him dying on the cross freed us from the punishment of our sin through repentance and faith in Christ. That's great news, amen? But does that mean that from this point on, We go on and sin no more? Does that mean from the point of salvation that all of a sudden our struggles are gone and we stop sinning? Of course, we know that that's not the case, that the sin carries on, unfortunately, that we still realize, even years after being saved, that we're still a mess. Anybody relate with me with that? I was saved at a young age, and I feel like some days I'm like, am I saved? (laughs) Like I have those slight moments of like, man, how in the world could I do that? So exactly how are we supposed to deal with the guilt that still remains after sin? This morning we're going to be talking about grieving over our sin. What does that look like? Do we just kind of act like it's no big deal? That, hey, Jesus came and so therefore I can just party. Like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But Jesus paid for my sins so who cares what we do now? Is that the attitude we should have? No. Should we go to the other side of, of the ditch and just decide, oh, man, I am a worthless sinner who can do no good. And we should just just kind of hang our heads low and be like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Poor me. I can't do anything right. Like I'm just such a sinner. Is, is that how we're supposed to respond? I would say both of these are extremes. And what we find here in Psalm 51 is a a good place to start in how we grieve over our sin. What does it look like? And so let's jump in and let's talk through this together. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminder that we had about remembering the cross. God, that you have paid for our sins. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we struggle if we're honest with ourselves. We struggle with how do we deal with the ever present indwelling sin within us so I pray for wisdom that you would help us to see and glean from David what it looks like to grieve over our sin properly what what is it appropriate Lord we, we have such extremes where some people just want to live their life however they want to and they don't care because Jesus forgives and and for others We can just dwell in our condemnation to make us fruitless because all we're thinking about is how fallen and broken and messed up we are. Lord, give us the proper balance and what that looks like. Lord, leave us encouraged this morning. And Father, if there be any unrepentant sin in any of us, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. God, we need you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in order for us to understand this psalm, I think it's important that we pull back the curtain like, what has, taken, what has taken place in the psalmist that would lead him to write what he's written here? What were the circumstances surrounding it? And does your Bible have a title of, in, first, in chapter 51 there? My title says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in into Bathsheba. I think many of you know the story of Bathsheba and David, but just in case you don't, we're going to take a look at it this morning because I think this really speaks to helping us grieve over our sin. So turn with me. Keep your finger here. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, of course, uh, at this point, he is the king of Israel. Uh, He's been known to be a man after God's own heart. Uh, He was, for the most part, a good king. But he had some dark, dark things in his life. And we're about to find out what that was in 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. (laughs) Already, we've got a problem here. David is not where he's supposed to be. David is supposed to be with the troops in battle, but here he is hanging out. Isn't it true that when God has given us clear directions on what we are to do and we choose not to participate, that things tend to go bad? So he has already started off at a bad place here. Look at verse 2. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's another issue. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this is the downfall for David. This is the beginning where things are going to begin to spiral out of control. So we see here, after he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, we're not going to go into this, but he brings home Uriah. Her husband, who is a warrior in the battle, and, and, and he, the, his intentions were, okay, I'm going to have Uriah come sleep with his wife, and then he's going to think that he's the dad, and then we'll be good, and we'll be settled. But what he didn't understand is that Uriah was an upright man, and he's thinking, who am I to be sleeping with my wife while my buddies are in war, where I'm supposed to be? There's no way I'm going to sleep with my wife when I should be in battle, and so he stays at the doorstep. And so this leads David, he had the chance to repent, but he's, he just wants to cover himself up. So what does David do? He sends Uriah back, and he sends a letter with him and says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to press up into the enemy, and at one point, I want the, all the troops to fall back and leave Uriah in the front. And that's exactly what happened, and David effectively murders Uriah to cover this up. Consider... What David has done here. Not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba, which by the way, you have to understand, this is probably more like sexual assault. More like rape. I mean, what is Bathsheba to do when the king says, sleep with me? I mean, there were some serious consequences back in those days if someone were to refuse the king. And so she's left stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so she violates Bathsheba, commits adultery, impregnates her, tries to hide it, but Uriah is a noble man and instead has Uriah killed. And this sets the tone for why David wrote Psalm 51. And ultimately, this is what happened here, led Nathan, the prophet, as it says in the, the headings there, "To confront David for his sin, and it is an epic confrontation. And I think it's worth our time here. Look at Samuel second Samuel chapter 12. Look what Nathan does. I love this story. This is fantastic, and he traps David. He says this in verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, He came to him and said to him, "There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor." The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So you see, this—it's like a dog. It's interesting pet. They loved this. It was the only thing they had. They didn't have a bunch. They had one that they loved. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I mean, you see what's going on here, right? This is David all over, and David has no clue. (laughs) He's just completely clueless, and you kind of wonder why. Like, what was David thinking? This is how blinded he was because of his sin. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Can you picture him? Like angry? How in the world? Because he'd take this sweet, precious lamb that they had as a pet and kill it. When this rich man had all the lambs, He, he didn't even need them all. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oh, David's fired up. And then Nathan said these words, you are the man. And at this point, David is crushed. And immediately his eyes are opened to his sinfulness and he understands for the first time what he has done to almighty God. And so what can we take away from this psalm? Usually I like to take phrases and tie them to scriptures, but I'm going to kind of be all over. So these are uh, three points I want to give you in light of grieving with our sin that we just see kind of all throughout this psalm. And so the first thing that we see here that David does is he turns to his heavenly father. So when we are grieving over our sin, what's the first thing we should do? Turn to your heavenly father. Turn to your heavenly Father, back in Psalm 51, notice, he starts out, Have mercy on me, O God. David understood who he needed to run to. The one whom he, that we offended, is the one whom we must go to. The one we have wronged is the only one who can release us from our guilt. And so he realizes it's God that he has sinned against. Look at verse 4 in chapter 51 of Psalms. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, at first, this is a little bit puzzling, don't you think? I mean, he's, he's created quite the stir. He's made quite the problem because he has messed up a lot of people's lives here. He's leading the Israel he is failing as a king because he's allowed his mind to stray. He's not at war where he should have been. Wouldn't you think that, like, Bathsheba was the one that he sinned against? I mean, he violated her. He put her in a, between a rock and a hard place, and then he killed her husband. Didn't he sin against her as well? How can he say that it was only against God... That he sins. Well, first of all, we must understand that David is not minimizing his sin against Bathsheba. David is not saying he did no wrong. He he understands, like, who is the one who sets the the moral code? Who is the one who sets morality? He understands who is the one who is given the law. And it is against him whom he has broken the code with. He has sinned ultimately against God. The ultimate sin was committed against God. He declared what right living is, God did, and therefore he broke it, and he needs to own up to him. This is why David is pleading with God. He can only find hope according to God's mercy. It says, have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You know, David could have easily jumped into self condemnation here and gone off the deep end, gone into the corner and suck on his thumb. If I'm honest, how many of you are more like that? Maybe not literally sucking on your thumb, maybe sometimes where you've screwed up, you've messed up miserably. And, and my inclination is, like, I need time away from God. Like, i I got to gotta spend some time in the bad boy corner, you know, when you send your kids to the corner, like, hey, stay there for 15 minutes. Like, that's the, what I find myself doing. But David, David has committed this horrendous sin, and yet what does he do? Immediately, he, he, I don't know the time frame here, but as soon as Nathan exposes him, he immediately repents of his sin and turns to him turns to God. I'm pretty sure that no one here has done anything nearly as bad as David has. You know, people have taken their life for doing less than what he has done. But he didn't run and hide. He came clean. He ran to his father for forgiveness. Let me ask you, when you blow it, where do you run to? Who do you run to? A lot of people run to the bottle, run to drugs, run to food, sleep. Do you know that you can run to your father when you fail even immediately? You don't have to take time away to mourn and then go to him as if somehow that makes things better. We can run to him immediately. If David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, can run to God in time of sin, then praise God, so can we. There's no waiting process. We don't have to go through a mourning process before we can come to him. Consider with me real quick what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 has to say. You don't have to turn there. You can mark it down, but Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let me just read this for us. It says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here's one thing that we must understand. We can find forgiveness, but we still may have to face the consequences of our sin. We still run to the Father, but we still have to understand God is not there to wipe out all the consequences necessarily. And he did not wipe the consequences out for for David here. We see here in verse 12, as he goes on, he calls him, you are the man. Towards the end of the chapter, David said this to Nathan in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. This is 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So here's the grace. God does forgive us. But the consequences still remain. 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And that's what happened. This child that Bathsheba conceived in sin passed away. So we must understand, we can run to the Father. He forgives us when we repent, but there still may be consequences for our sin. But make no mistake, believer, you don't have to dwell and hang on to that sin. You don't have to beat yourself up for a period of time before you can run to him. We can go to him immediately. Here's the second thing that we see in this. Own up to your sin. Own up to your sin. You know, David doesn't make any excuses here. Nowhere do we see him trying to justify his sin. The very fact that David is asking for mercy points out that he understands he's asking for something that he doesn't deserve. Here's a simple definition of mercy. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. David understands what he deserves here. He knows that he understands judgment. He deserves to have the kingship torn away from him. He understands that he deserves separation and punishment from God for eternity. And yet he's pleading for mercy. He's not making excuses for his sin. He does not deserve God's presence. And he does not deserve his lasting presence. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David clearly deserves to be thrown to the wayside, cast into hell and forgotten about. He was guilty, and he knew it. You know, if if I'm honest, if if there's one point in today's sermon that I think the church, the people in the church miss out the most, especially in our culture, it's this. The fact that we don't own up to our sin. We have a million excuses that we like to use to try to shift blame others. Don't we see this all over our culture? Do you remember even 10 years ago, if a man came out and said he was a woman, how did we treat that? We we called it gender dysphoria, right? It's an issue that you need to seek counseling on. Now, not only is it not looked at at that, but it's celebrated. Like, we're celebrating something that we condemned 10 years ago, even as a culture. This is what happens. The culture is trying to legalize sin. It's trying to make things, like, make it easy for us to sin. That's what it's doing. You ever, like, the thing that, it cracks me up and makes me angry all the same. Like, you see, like, gambling ads. Like, hey, go to suchandsuch.com, and you can gamble all day long. Oh, by the way, if you have a gambling problem. <laughs> like, this is the way the world does. Like, we, we are justifying everything. And we are no less guilty. I could surely see, like, sexual sin is running rampant, even in the church amongst men, but also women. And I have heard of men who are blaming women for the clothes that they wear, and that's the reason why they have lust problems. Guys, let's change that narrative. We got to own up to our sin. David doesn't say, Well, Bathsheba should have never been bathing on top of the roof where I could see her. Doesn't she know that I got a couch up here and like to hang out? Regardless, whose responsibility was it to look away? It was David's. We got to do a better job of owning up to our sin and stop pointing fingers. I could even imagine people blaming the army, for taking David's order to have Uriah killed. Well, why did you follow through with that? That wasn't right. That wasn't, like, David's fault. He was just in a weak spot. He was just in a struggle. Like, why didn't you, like, help him out at that point? That's justifying it. And David is doing none of that. He is completely owning up to everything. Just listen. Listen to what he says. In verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. So let me ask you, do you own up to your sin? Or are you someone that's trying to blame somebody else and make excuses for why you have your problems? I see this in the workplace where, well, you don't know who I work for, so that's why I have a bad attitude. We, we have no excuse when we proclaim Jesus on a cross, being spit on, that people are literally casting lots to decide who gets Jesus' clothes. Like, they're mocking him. And what does Jesus say? Hey, God, this is not fair. I didn't deserve any of this. God's perfect. I came down here. I took the whippings. Seriously? You're going to allow them to do this? Is that what Jesus said on the cross? What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Does that not blow your mind? Brothers and sisters, let's not make excuses for why we sin. James 1.14 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So like, you know, your kids are fighting and you're like, somebody hits the other one. Why did you hit them? What, what, what does a kid usually say? Like, he made me mad or she made me mad? You know, that's not really true. <laughs> Like our anger comes from the evil desires within us that comes out. We are without excuse, so own up to it. Perhaps this morning you have indwelling sin that you have not repented of. And you may see your life just spiraling out of control and you're afraid to bring it to the light because then people will know. But all the meanwhile, because you are not bringing it to the light, things keep getting worse for you. This morning could be the day where you repent. You bring it to the light. Own up to your sin. Here's the last thing we see in David. Seek restoration in the Lord. Seek restoration in the Lord. David sought God out right away. It was against him and him alone that he sinned, and therefore he alone was the one who could help him through this mess. He saw his sin for what it was. He owned up to it. He made no excuses. And because of his sin, he knew there was a wall that was put up between him and God. And so he seeks restoration. Consider what he says here. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Restore the joy of my salvation. David is missing What he had with God. He's missing the fellowship that was there. He was missing the freedom in that relationship. And he's longing to have it back. And he understands his greatest need here. He wasn't asking God for deliverance from sexual immorality. Notice that. Oh, God, keep my eyes pure. Now, is that a good prayer? Yes. That's a good prayer. But that wasn't his ultimate focus because that wasn't his ultimate problem. David knew that his greatest problem was that his sin had separated him from his relationship with his father. It muddied things up. His conscience was seared, and he needed to be restored. He had a worship problem. But here's the thing. Did David stop worshiping? Nope. It wasn't a, a lack of worship, was not the problem here. The problem was the object of his worship changed, where he was slave to his own desires and he was no longer worshiping God. And David, here in the psalm, is recentering his life back on God. He's reminding himself about where his true hope lies. Verse fourteen says, "Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, my of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your salvation, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise." What is it ultimately that God wants from us? We see that here. Look at verse sixteen. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God isn't looking for men to, and women to do a bunch of good things for him. He's not looking here when they did sacrifices of animals. That he's not looking for them to go do some sacrifices of animals. He's, he's not looking for outward expressions He's not looking for good works to behold. That's not what God cares mostly about. He values the broken and contrite heart. A contrite heart, you you may have a word, you may say humility in your Bible. It's a humble heart. It's, It's coming to God, understanding that we have nothing to offer him anyway. We need a crushed heart. We need to understand Who we are apart from Christ. Who we were. And this is what David has displayed here. He has laid himself bare and exposed before God. There's nothing for David to hide before God anyway. Because there's nothing he could hide. He's just being honest with who he is before Almighty God. And this is what God desires of you. You know, some people don't come to God because they have this They're stuck on the realization that, man, I'm just not good enough. And let me just remind you, you will never be good enough. And that's good news. Because if we were good enough, and that's how God received us, by our good works, then what happens when we trip and fall and stumble in our walk with God? What happens? Have we then, like, lost favor with God? And so if we can't earn favor with God, then once God has rescued us, we can't somehow fall out of it. That doesn't make sense. That's no way to live. How can God be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and bond, and steadfast love unless you screw up? Like that, that doesn't make sense. God can't be gracious and merciful if he's going to hold you to the way that you live your life in the sense that you earn salvation. Now does God hold us to how we live our lives? Like does it matter, I, I should say, how we live our lives? Yes. Right? Because a broken and contrite heart will result in good works. Because that's what God has created for us, that we should walk in it. But we're not saved by our good works. We don't come to God with our resume. He's not impressed. The reason why God looks for the broken and contrite heart, the broken and humble heart, is because that's the man and the woman that he can use for his glory. Because the proud heart, the one who boasts in his works, when God uses him for good things, what's his temptation going to be? Look what I did. It's amazing. It's amazing. No, this is, a, this is a pivotal moment for David in his walk, to be crushed. And it's good when God crushes us. It's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you've laid yourself bare before the Lord in all your brokenness? Where you stop trying to hide the ugliness of your sin and you just weep? before him God doesn't want your resume he doesn't want your good works it starts with a broken and contrite heart he wants humility he wants proper understanding of who we are without Christ brothers and sisters it's important for you to know that you don't have it all together and that's okay So be real with your Father who loves you so intimately. He spared no expense for your pardon. He gave everything in Jesus for you. If you are carrying with you hidden sin this morning, lay it at your feet. There's no hiding from God. Stop trying to. Even this morning, just, I think I said this earlier, but, you know, reading through Psalm 51, I was walking and praying this morning, thanks to the later start time, and just pondering Psalm 51 and realizing, man, Lord, there are so many things that I just need to confess to you right now. And I'm like confessing and I'm kind of getting worked up, like, man, Lord, I'm broken, I'm messed up. And then I'm reminded of who wrote Psalm 51. David, who was called a man after God's own heart, and yet he slept with a woman that wasn't his wife while he was married, got her pregnant, and then had her husband murdered. And if God would look at him and say, You are forgiven, then, brothers and sisters, we can find forgiveness in Christ this morning. And I was rekindled and reminded of the fact that because of Jesus' death on the cross, I am restored. And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 3. And we'll wrap up with this. As you know, we are uh, put Acts aside for a while. We've made our way through much of the book. But Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says this and following. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ took on the form of sinful man, yet he never sinned. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death on a cross, taking on the sins of every person who would ever believe so that we might be made right with the Father. Brothers and sisters, do you need restored today? Have you found yourself wandering from your Savior Has your worship shifted from your heavenly Father towards something else? Let me remind you, God isn't looking for good works. But he will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Humble yourself before him. Lay yourself bare before him and find rest. Be honest about your sin with no excuses. And he will restore you. Perhaps you have never humbled yourself before God. And maybe you have put yourself in a camp where your sins are too great. We sang it this morning, our sins there are many, but his mercy is more. Consider the life of David, a man unworthy of God's grace and yet rescued him. Brothers and sisters, you are not so bad that God can't rescue you. That if you look to the cross, you repent of your sin, you turn from it, and you place your faith in Christ, you can find salvation this morning and you can find restoration for your soul. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy, your grace. I thank you for the life of David that we can look to, Lord, and understand that even David, with all the good things that was said about him, uh, being a man after God's own heart, like, and yet you forgave him. God, there is mercy for us this morning. And what great news is Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Father, I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters who have repented and placed their faith in you, Lord, that you would remind them of their great salvation, not something they earned, not by works of righteousness, but according to your mercy. Lord, thank you that you've rescued us. Lord, for those who are searching, those who feel like they've messed up so greatly that there's no way God would bring them back, remind them of a life of David. Bring them to repentance, Lord. Lord. Bring them to sorrow over their sin. and Remind them of the great salvation that lies with Christ. Father, we praise you that you are, even though our sins are many, your mercy is more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand now as we sing in response.